Let me call your attention to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. But does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a lot there. Let's pray about it. Go to it. Father, I pray you would help us today. We come to you on the merits of Jesus by your spirit. We can only pray because of what Jesus has done for us. We claim his righteousness. We only know what to pray because your spirit guides us. We thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. Strengthen their hearts. I pray for those that think they are Christians that are not. Spirit of God, would you wake them up? to love Christ above all. We ask you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When the phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning and the person that is on the other end of the line identifies himself as someone with authority, you know that the news that you are about to receive is going to change your life forever. And when you are given that news, you're listening to it, the truth of that information sits down on you and enters into your soul, your heart, your life is altered from that point forward. The passage that I just read to you, that is a 2 a.m. phone call. And if this information, if this information is rightly understood, it will reach into your soul and change the course of your life forever. Let me give some context. If you're a guest with us today, this is what we do. Read the Bible and we just talk about what does the Bible say. Here's the context. We are in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark has been writing the story, telling us about Jesus. We got to the very height of who Jesus is in Mark chapter 8 when his disciple Peter said, You are the Christ the son of the living God. Mark has shown us Jesus' teaching. He has shown us Jesus casting out demons. He has shown us Jesus performing miracles. He has shown us Jesus giving sight to the blind. And now we have the truth. He is 
Peter has said it, the Son of God. He has authority. And now, with that authority in place, Jesus gives a very short sermon, verses 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. A short sermon that is in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in all of the gospels. Verse 34 says that he calls not just his disciples, but he calls the crowds. Everybody that's been following along, everybody that has been watching his miracles, everybody that is enamored, thinks positively of Jesus, he calls that person over. All of the admirers and the hangers-on, he calls them over. And in no uncertain terms, Jesus gives the requirements of what it means to belong to him. What it means for you to call yourself a Christian. This is unlike anything else that Jesus has said up to this point. This is the separation. This is this is that which will tell us who is a disciple, who is not a disciple. This is the separation that will tell us who is a sheep, who is a goat. This is the separation that will tell us who will hear at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant, and who will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. This is not for the faint of heart. But these words are life. These words are life for all who will believe. These words are strength for all who are in Christ. Because the truth of the matter is, everyone who claims to be a Christian is not one. Everyone who claims that he is a Christian is not one. I want you to, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to ask God right now, just right now where you are, ask God to give you ears to hear. Ask God to help you examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. And with that in mind, let's go to the words of Jesus. Let's find the words of Jesus and let's see the words of Jesus as he gives us four ways Christians will live. This is the words of Jesus. Four ways Christians will live. Let's start with the first one, number one. Every Christian, every Christian lives an abandoned life. That's how you know he's a Christian. Every Christian lives a life that is abandoned to God. It's right there in verse 34. You've read it. You probably already divided it out. In verse 34, there are three segments in verse 34. Let's read it and go through them. Verse 34, Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, look at the three segments, if anyone would come after me, here are the three things. You want to be my disciple? Here are the three things. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. You see the three, let's start with the self-denial. What does it mean to deny self? To have a decisive action, a, a defining act, something that has happened, this is what I was, I'm not that anymore, this is who I am. The word deny means to abandon, it means to, to, to reject if you deny something, you're saying, I have nothing to do with that. 
It is a repudiation. This is the word that Jesus uses when he talks about what Peter will do by the servant girl when Christ is being, when he's being tried and Peter denies him three times. Peter says, I do not know him. To deny means to create a distance, to, to, to dig a chasm, an uncrossable sea. To deny yourself means to give up a reliance on whatever you are by nature. Even if you say, this is how I was born, you are saying, now I'm not that. To deny means to disown completely. To shift the center of gravity in your life from a concern so much about yourself to a reckless abandon to God. That's what this means. To see that old self and go on the hunt for that old self, to find that self and kill it. Oftentimes while we're eating and then after supper, Connie and I will watch TV together. She's on the couch and I am uh, in my chair. Every man needs a chair. Don't be mean, get your man a chair, needs a chair. Mine has a lever on the side and I'll pull it in the third gear and my feet go up. Sitting in the chair the other night and done eating, I looked over across the floor, seven, six or seven feet away, and there close to the wall is a giant, giant. I thought it was a tarantula, giant. Uh, I don't live in the jungle, so maybe it's a wolf spider or something, a giant spider. And I hit the lever, jumped up, ran over, and stomped that spider with such velocity, <laughs> like I was smashing aluminum cans in the house. I see a fly flying around, I get the fly swatter and go after it like I'm batting down blackbirds. Go after to kill is the idea, deny yourself. What is it you need to deny? Is it some sort of sin? Maybe it's your own self-reliance. Maybe you think you're good enough, you don't need all of that. Maybe you're just enough. Maybe, you're, maybe your denial needs to not be all of the things that are pulling you away. It is you think you're actually there. But more than likely... That self-denial includes denying your own pride or greed or, or lust or complacency or laziness or some addiction. God has brought you here so that you hear the words of Jesus who says, if you're going to follow me, here's what it means to deny that. Maybe you have an anger problem, get rid of that. Complacency, maybe just comfortable. It was comfortable. You know, most all of the sins that we commit against other people, most all of the sins that we commit against other people find their root in selfishness. I value me. I value this more than I do that. I see that that is important. This is more important than selfishness. To deny self is to, to decide to kill it. Most marriages fall apart. You can dress it up and say, we just fell out of love with one another, or we just don't get along. Most marriages fall apart because one or both of the parties at some point just got selfish. Selfish. 
It's a reminder that it's the absolute grace of God. How are we saved? It is this denial of everything I bring, my own righteousness, my own religion, everything I've tried to do, all of my good works, all of my effort. I deny that that was any good is to deny that and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross do I cling. To see it is the absolute grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. It is the outpouring of God's mercy in your life. Not self, not self, but Christ. To deny self, he must deny himself. That's the first part of this first point. I'm going to be the second part. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me or follow me, he must deny himself. And what is the second part? Take up his cross. You see that? Verse 34, the last part, take up his cross. Here for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark is the word cross. We won't see it again mentioned until Mark chapter 15 when Jesus is crucified on the cross in the place of sinners for our own redemption and forgiveness. We won't see it again. But when Jesus said this, as his disciples and the crowd were around him, every person that heard it knew just what he was talking about. Mark wrote these words for a church that was living in Rome in about 65 or 6 A.D. They've seen Nero crucify Christians. They knew just what Mark was talking about. And Jesus says, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. They knew the Persians had invented crucifixion. The Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. That's what they did. The Romans, when they would find someone guilty of a crime and it was a capital punishment to execution, they wouldn't just kill the criminal. They would make sure he is an example. The condemned man would be an example. Part of the sentence would be a humiliating walk with the crossbeam on your back to the place where you are going to be nailed to that? We see that even in the story of Jesus when Simon of Cyrene takes his cross. What are they doing there? They're making him carry his cross. What does Jesus mean? This is not a, this is not a colloquialism. We sometimes will use it. We Say things, oh, it's just my, my cross to bear. I got this arthritis, it's just my cross to bear. I got a bad heart, it's my cross to bear. I, I'm married to a mean woman, she's just my cross to bear. <laughs> if she's mean, you better not say that. <laughs> we use it as a colloquialism. That is not what Jesus means. You guys that used to be hippies, you heard the Almond Brothers sing my cross. This is not what that means. To, to take up your cross is is the, the simple submission to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ rather than your own self-determination. It is relinquishing autonomy. If, if the cross of Jesus, if the cross of Jesus is the heart of Christianity, then cross-bearing is essential for Christian discipleship. This, this cross-bearing, this is, this is the willingness to self-sacrifice even to the point of giving up your life. This right here, this divides the, those that are disciples from those that are admirers. 
to take up your cross, this is a, this is a willingness. This is a willingness to renounce all for Christ. Whatever, whatever path you own, whatever path you are on as a Christian, your path is the path of Golgotha. To take up your cross is this willingness to pay any price for the glorious gift that God gives you in Jesus. Look at it now, verse 34. It is a staggering statement. But if you're a Christian, you know it. You, you know this. You picked up your cross. You understand it's a one-way journey. If not, would you pick up your cross today? Would you do that today? Would you say, that's what I want. I want that. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you deny yourself. Verse 34, deny yourself. The second one is you take up your cross. The third condition is that you follow. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We sometimes call ourselves Christ followers. What do we mean by Christ followers? It's different from having followers on, on Instagram. What does it mean to have, a, have Christ and you are a follower of Christ. I'll give you a couple of ways you could define it. There are multiple ways. I'll just give just a couple of ways you would define it. One is to trust him. If you follow Christ, you trust him. You trust him. That's what Jesus says in John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever, if you will believe in him, whoever believes in him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. You trust, what do you trust Jesus for? I'll give you a couple of things. You trust him for your own salvation, you trust that Jesus Christ died in your place, that God raised him from the dead, and you are saved not because you're a good person, but because of what Jesus has done. You trust him for your redemption. You trust him in providence, that, that God is working all things together. Romans 8, 28, if you're going to claim that, let's live it. Romans 8, 28, that tells us that God is working all things together for good, for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. That means providence, the good things and the bad things. There is a smiling providence. There is a frowning providence. There is a sunny providence. There is a cloudy providence. But it is all providence. That God is in control of it, and you are trusting that he is taking you somewhere. You trust uh, in uh, and if for redemption, you trust his providence. You trust him in your pain. For some of you, it's been a hard week, a hard month. But you trust him. That God is using that to refine you, to build you, to strengthen you, to take away that which is not good and bring that which is good. You trust him. For those of you that are aging, maybe with an ailment, maybe you've got a terminal disease, we, we trust him with our eternity. We don't lose hope because of Christ, you see. To follow him is to trust him. To follow him is to imitate him. So Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We trust him in his humility as he stood under it. We trust him in his love for people that don't love us. He told us to love our enemies. We trust him in his patience, in his suffering. 
To follow him is to, is to trust him, is to imitate him. To follow him is to obey him. What did Jesus say about in John 15, 14 when he talked to his friends? This is what he said. You are my friends. Here's how you know you're my friend. If you do what I tell you, you'll know a Christian. Every Christian lives an abandoned life. That's the first point. Let me give you a second one. Number two. Second point. Number two. Every Christian lives a bewildering, a bewildering life. It doesn't make sense. Verse 35 is a, is a paradox. You see the bewilderment in verse 35? Let me read it to you. See the paradox? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever saves it, lose it. Whoever loses it, save it. Some people have said this is the most important verse in this little passage right here. Because what it does, in verse 35, it defines the two selves that are found there. One self says, I'm saving my life. I'm maximizing all of my, my opportunities. I'm doing all I can in this world right now for myself to build it up. I'm saving what I have here, keeping it to myself. And I see all that's around me as that which is most valuable. It's more than anything else in this world. I want that. I want all that the world has to give me all of the love or happiness, want to have a marriage or kids or respectability or money or whatever it is that you would say, I want that. That's most important to me. And Jesus says, that person will lose his life. That's one self. Verse 35. There's another self. There's another self that says, yeah, I like all that stuff. I, I love, I want, I want all of that. That's what I want. I want that but I don't want that more than I want Jesus. You see, I want Jesus. He's most precious to me. I'll let go of anything. Any promotion, any amount of money, any relationship, any prestige, any pride, any addiction that I'm, that's sort of been defined, I'll, I'll let that go. Any habit, Jesus says, that person right there, that person, that person who will lose his life, for my sake, the gospel, that's the one that's saved. Verse 35, it's interesting at the end of verse 35. That's how he defines it. There's a lot here, but just, just verse 35. At the end of verse 35, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Loses his life for my sake and the gospel. Do you see how he's, my sake and the gospel, he's put the two together. They are the same. That the gospel of grace is how you get Jesus. How do you get Jesus? It's the gospel, my sake and the gospel. The gospel, how, how do we define the gospel here? When we talk about the gospel here, just so I can explain it in a brief way, the Bible teaches that God created us in his image. You have dignity because God created you in, in his image. You are dignified because of that. But the image of God in you has been disfigured because of sin. Not a person here that would say, I'm perfect. You would admit, I'm a sinner. That sin is not just that your life has gone off the rails, you made some bad decisions. That sin is an actual offense to God. It's a crime against the holy God. We understand justice. We like when crime is punished. We get that from the Bible. God taught us that. God is the holy judge who will 
judge all crimes and punish crime. The worst crime that you can ever commit is an actual offense against a holy God. That's sin. That's what we've done. And because of that, we stand under condemnation. That's bad news. The good news is God is also loving and kind, and he's given us Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, fully God, fully man. Fully man comes into this world like all of us did and lived this perfect life we were supposed to because we had the image of God in us, but sin, our own sin, kept us from it. Well, Jesus didn't sin. Jesus lived the way men and women were supposed to. Perfect fellowship with God, kept all of the commandments. It is righteousness that he has earned for us. So that what happens at the cross is God then takes his wrath that only Jesus could handle because he is also all God. God takes his wrath and pours it out on his son, that's John 3, 16, in your place. What you deserve and what I deserve is the wrath poured out on Jesus. What we get is the righteousness that he earned. So that if you hear this and think, I want that, how the gospel becomes yours is you trusting Jesus died in your place. You might even write it down, Jesus died for me. Ask God to save you based on what Jesus has done for you. You understand that Jesus cannot be added to your life. Jesus must become your life. This is the great paradox of Christianity. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You gather all that stuff, it's going to be gone. But whoever would let it go for, for my sake and the gospel, his life will be saved. Two points. I'll give you a third. First point is every Christian lives an abandoned life. Second point is every Christian lives a bewildering life. Verse 35, it doesn't make sense. Here's the third point, number three. Every Christian lives a content, a content I don't mean you don't have ambition. I don't mean you're not trying to do better for your family. I mean there's this settled contentedness that Christ has given you. That you're okay with Christ as, as you're all. It's in verse 36 and 37. R.C. Sproul, when he looked at these verses, he said that in these two verses, Jesus is giving, a div- He's giving us a lesson in spiritual economics. That's what Sproul said. We've got to take them as a whole. Verse 36 And 37, and I want you to pay attention to the word gain and the word profit as I read it to you. Verse 36 and 37. For what does it, for what does it profit a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See the word profit and gain? What does it profit? What kind of gain do you get? When you work your 40 to 50 hours, You get paid for the work that you've done and you pay all of the bills. Everybody is taken care of. All the payments are made and there's a little bit left over. That's gain. What is the gain? What is is gain for you? Is it hopefully, uh, you like to have a nice house or a better car or a gain for you really is more intangible to be a husband or a wife. That would be gain if you could have children or maybe you're like, if I early retirement, I would do anything for that. Or if I could just get in shape or a boat. Whatever you think gain is, if gaining costs you your soul, 
then there's no profit. If gaining costs you your soul, then you have sacrificed that which is supremely valuable for that which is worthless in comparison. There's an emptiness. There's just an emptiness here. I just finished the book uh, called Power Failure. It's a fascinating story of the rise of GE, General Electric Company, the rise of rise and fall <coughs> of GE. It became the biggest company in the United States, the biggest company in the world, under the lead, leadership of a man, named, a man named Jack Welch. Jack Welch led it for 20 years. He was a cutthroat man. He was pictured as one of the great leaders. People patterned their careers after him. He met with presidents. He had millions of dollars, homes all over the world. He couldn't keep a family together. He kept getting married and divorces. Kids didn't care much for him. He was interviewed for the book as an old man, looking back on his career. And his language is foul. He's filled with bitterness because GE went down and it felt like what he had built had been wasted. And he died with this hatred for the company and the people. And I stepped away from that book and thought, man, life didn't amount to anything. And the point, the point Jesus is making is that your soul is of supreme value. When I see someone outside of church, restaurant or somewhere, sometimes at a funeral or a wedding, a social event, I see someone that has not been to church in a long time, and they're not going to church anywhere, and they've, maybe because the, they have a talented kid that's really showing some progress and all of the travel that goes with cultivating that talent keeps them away from church, or maybe things have gone well financially, so much so that you can travel a lot on the weekends or just gone, or maybe just got lazy. I, I had one guy tell me straight up, uh, yeah, COVID-19, 12 Sundays we missed, it was just easier to keep my pajamas on and watch. And I walk away thinking, do you understand the value of your soul. Why would you let anything, no matter how good it is, beautiful it is, and wonderful it is, why would you let anything in this decaying world threaten your soul? You see, Christian life is, um, it, we live as a, a contented. That's what Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 and 13. That's what Paul says. Paul says, not that, I am, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That secret is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens. Verse 37, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. You see it? A rhetorical question is you understand the answer. There's an obvious answer. The question in verse 37 is, what can a man give for his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And the obvious answer is nothing. You spend all of your life getting all of these things and relationships and money and card, wealth, 
or prestige and pride or family. You want your kids happy and you walk up and you realize you didn't, you didn't, you didn't spend time with your soul and you come to the cash register and say, I want a soul. And you put all of that on the table. It's not enough. Jesus says all of that won't get you a soul. There's only one. There's only one way for a soul to be purchased. It's through the blood of Jesus dying on the cross in your place. It's the promise and the hope of the gospel. Every Christian has an abandoned life. Every Christian has a bewildering life. Every Christian lives a content life. Let me give you one last one. We'll call it a day. Here's the fourth point, number four. Every Christian lives a courageous life courageous life. Look, if you love Christ, you're trying to live your life as a faithful believer at any age in this world, you are living a courageous. You didn't know you were being courageous. You're actually being courageous. There's a word here in verse 38. It's the word shame. Shame. Shame is a hard thing. It's a powerful emotion. It's caused by a perceived shortcoming or some sort of impropriety or guilt that you feel uh, shame always has an audience. It's this deep embarrassment, knowing that other people have cast disapproval. That's what shame is. And with that word in mind, come with me to verse 38, and let's finish it out in verse 38. Notice what he says. Jesus says, whoever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, they go together, me and my words, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In this adulterous and sinful generation, if it was adulterous and sinful 2,000 years ago, what is it today? 2023. Here you are living your life simply as a Christian you're not standing on the street preaching, you're not putting a Bible in everybody's office, you're not doing all that, you're just living. But you're living with joy. We live in a world that is intimidating, you're going to be ridiculed. If you believe what the Bible teaches, you're going to be ridiculed. Jesus said, ashamed of me and my words, me and my words, the Bible. To live in 2023 is to live in a world that will seek to shame you. The way the Bible is written is that we're not the ones to be ashamed. They are. You have nothing to be ashamed of if you love Christ and love the Bible. But you live in a world that will tell you that LGBTQ should be carpetly received. That gender is fluid, and if a man decides he wants to be a woman, he can do that. We would say no. We're not going to fight people about it. We're not chasing people down. We're just saying the Bible, that's not what, the Bible has shown us that there is something beautiful about his creation, what he's given us, beautiful about God creating a woman in his image, beautiful about God creating a man in his image. You, you, you take your life and you live it humbly and you do so believing that the Bible has told you that what marriage means, what truth is, what life is. And verse 38 tells us 
There comes a day when the Son of Man, verse 38, when the Son of Man will, the final judgment come. And he comes in the glory of his Father, he says, with millions of angels. And on that day, all of those who thought, I don't want any part of that. All of those who were ashamed of him. The consequences here in verse 38 of being ashamed of Christ are cataclysmic. The picture here is the, is the picture of the magnificent, inspiring arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When judgment comes, he comes in the glory of his Father. The angels are with him, and it is judgment for all of those who rejected him. It's, it's, it's vindication for all of you who lived in a world under times of being mocked and misunderstood and fired. It's, it's, it's the picture, verse 38, is the picture of you living your Christian convictions in a world that mocks, a world that mocks you and is doing all it can to destroy you being faithful to the end. Look, brothers and sisters, and those of you that are not yet brothers and sisters, everyone who claims to be a Christian is not one. My prayer today is that God has opened your eyes and heart and ears to hear and see and believe and trust Jesus. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a moment of prayer, and you join me? Amen. Thank you. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? I'll ask a couple of questions. You heard me read the words of Jesus when he called for an abandoned life. Every Christian lives an abandoned life. Are you living your life abandoned to Christ? Now look at me. Are you living your life abandoned to Christ? Is your life a bewildering life in, in such that it, there's this paradox? You, you've given it up. Whatever it is, you're, you're willing to give that up to have Christ. That you're saved by that. Have you found this certain contentment, this solid contentment in Christ that no matter what happens, I have look for gain in the world, I have Christ. Is there been instilled in you this joyful courage of your convictions? the Son of God, Jesus, died in your place. God raised him from the dead, and your only hope is in Christ. This morning, we're going to sing a, a final song, and it's an invitation for any of you that would like to come and pray here, any of you that would like to talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Any of you, some of you are sitting here, and, and through the entire sermon, all you could do is think of someone you know who thinks she's a Christian but is not. You want to come and pray for her. When we sing this morning, if you'd like to come and pray, now's a good time. Father, thank you for your good grace to us in Jesus. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the way that you've washed over us with grace. We pray that you'd find us faithful. Thank you for the strengthening word that Jesus has given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you stand, please, as we sing together.